Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com songcraftshow. You're listening to CMA Song of the Year winner, Follow Your Arrow performed by Casey Musgraves and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Shane McAnally. The three-time Grammy winner, two-time ACM Songwriter of the Year, and star of the NBC show Songland will join us later to talk about a few of the 40 number one hits he's written or produced, including Mama's Broken Heart, American Kids, Vice, Body Like a Backroad, and more. Part one. Well, once again, today's episode is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. So this might be the time to just write them an email and say thanks for the episode. <laughs> right. Because Pearl Snap Studios, is, it, it's not me and Scott today. No, nope. they, they are a generous underwriter. Yeah, they're the ones bringing you this episode. And uh, if you haven't already figured this out before from what we've told you, Pearl Snap Studios is the place to go. If you've got a song that you've written and you want it to be turned into a quality, commercial, pitchable sounding recording. Absolutely. And, you know... I am one of these people who's a little suspicious of like ads, you know, and I remember when we first were approached with the concept of like, do we want to have sponsorship on this show? Do we want to have people who, you know, sort of hawk their wares and let people know about their services here? Uh, I was kind of concerned about that because I said, look, man, I don't really want to have people coming on here advertising stuff that isn't something that I would actually endorse or use myself. Right. So we said no to Nike. We said no to Coca-Cola. Exactly. Right. Um, but then scrambling. But then Pearl Snap came along and uh, you actually have known Justin at Pearl Snap for a long time. And you played me a few samples of some of the stuff that he produced. And I'm like, I'm in 100 yeah. percent. This yeah. guy does amazing stuff. And the thing that's so cool about it is we have had listeners on this show um, who have sent MP3s of just guitar vocal work tapes to to Justin and his team, and they have turned them into fully pitchable, full band demos that sound fantastic. And yep. it's cool to see how happy a lot of our listeners have been with what they've gotten from Pearl Snap. Yeah, I'd say it's a win, win, win. All around. Win. Cannot lose. And there probably is another win in there somewhere. But there I, might be. I, I, can, I can point to four. Yeah. So um, pearlsnapstudios.com. Go check them out. And tell Justin that Scott and Paul sent you, and he will give you the fine, fine royal treatment. Part two. Well, you know, for, for this discussion, the part one discussion of this episode, um, I, I wanted to do something a little different. Uh, I'm taking a suggestion from one of our uh, Patreon subscribers, one of our patrons. Oh, cool. Um, a guy named David Plin wrote the other day and said, have you guys ever done a segment on the worst covers out there, the worst <laughs> cover versions right. of songs? Um, and I thought, you know what, we haven't, and that is the kind of thing that I sit around and think about quite a bit. I'm <laughs> sure we, I'm not sure why we haven't talked about that. Um, so I was wondering if you had any in mind. I, it made me think of a couple, um, right. some songs that you're like, you know, that cover just shouldn't have been done. <laughs> oh yeah, I can think of some. Um, well, you know, when you talk about this, I think there's entire artists who, uh, like UB40, yeah, kind of comes to mind. Um, that, you know, I, the songs that they have had hits with that are cover songs. Yeah. 
it's not even necessarily that they're not done well. It's just like, why? Right. You know, why, why did that need to happen? And I, I think Michael Bolton has really has kind of cornered, <laughs> like, there's no question that Michael Bolton is a great singer. Right. But who goes, you know what? Sitting on the dock of the bay needs to be done again. Oof. When a man loves a woman, yeah. wasn't wasn't really nailed the 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 correct way the the first time. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and redo those. I mean, I don't I don't get sort of the impulse of some artists to like let me cover an absolute classic. Right. That well, no one needs to cover. We might have to have a talk with Rod Stewart about that because that's been his whole like <laughs> new career move. Rod Stewart and Seal with these kind of like soul records. I, I don't understand it either. Um, you know, w- one that I thought of, and, and you and I both kind of grew up on Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. And he was kind of one of our guys in the 90s. And I'll, <laughs> I'll still stand beside the first two going. records, man. The first two <laughs> records, I'll still stand behind them. If anybody wants to check them out. But man, that cover of American Woman. Yeah, unnecessary. Oh, and it's just grating. It's, <laughs> and the original American Woman by the Guess Who, you know, we interviewed Randy Bachman, the writer of that song. That cover is awful. <laughs> It's awful. It's it's bad for the guess who, and it's bad for Lenny, and it was bad for me for having heard it. Right. Uh, you remember Susan Boyle? I do. Took the world by storm when turned out the gal could sing. Yeah. Um, she covered Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones. Oh. Uh, not to say that that song uh, can't be covered, because the Sundays did a cover of that song. Yeah, that I would was... think she should have retitled it Mild Horses. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm going to go ahead and give the thumbs up on the Sunday's cover of Wild Horses and thumbs down on the Susan yeah. Boyle cover. Yeah. Uh, th- this one, we shouldn't even have to say this, but when Limp Biscuit covered George Michael's Faith, <laughs> and, and, and I, I really respect George Michael as a writer. Faith is not one of my favorites of his songs. It was right. already a silly song. But, man, that version, it's just like it's just like pouring hot lava into my ears. Right. Can't so take it. when it comes to Limp Biscuit covers, you're more of a behind blue eyes guy. Oh man, I can't believe I didn't <laughs> even think of that one. That's what what a that's a way more egregious. Uh, yeah, that one's rough. Okay, so let me. Okay, so here's one that you might I might upset you with. Okay, and I don't know if you can. I don't know if it's considered a cover song if you're covering yourself. Okay, and I hate to to touch on an artist that is one of your favorites. But the Princess Diana version of Candle oh, in the yeah, Wind that, that Elton John did, is that a cover? I don't know. But that's almost even worse because you're covering yourself, and it's, it's yeah. that, that was painful. Yeah, that was painful. And, and it's, it, it's the third time that that song had hit the radio, too. I mean, I, right. I feel like they've squeezed everything they can out of Candle in the Wind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was not a fan. Of that. That, that doesn't hurt me at all. Um, <laughs> I hope you're not hurt by the fact that Smash Mouth's I'm a Believer <laughs> <laughs> is a problem for me. Um, even even if it wasn't a Neil Diamond song and, right. and a great Neil Diamond, even if it was only known as a Monkeys song, right. I still wouldn't like that cover. I, the Monkeys <laughs> did a pretty great version. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that actually doesn't bother me. Oh, I know. I, I don't know why. I, it doesn't. What it, if it was an original by Smash Mouth that should bother you? Like it's just a <laughs> bad sounding thing. That thing is a bad sounding thing. I kind of like that Farfisa organ or whatever it is they got going on. <sighs> Walking on the sun, like yeah. Right, you know they had a sound. Um, yes, they did. <laughs> All right. So here's one for you. Uh, mostly just because I feel like it goes against the spirit of what the original was meant to be. But I feel like something's really lost in the translation of Britney Spears's version of I love rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it kind of loses the rebellious, yes, uh, you know, kind of non-mainstream statement. Right. Well, when you've only really heard rock and roll coming out of someone else's car, <laughs> can you love it? <laughs> I feel like Joan Jett sang that song from inside of rock and roll, and and Britney heard it echoed off of some other wall. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and say the entire Moulin Rouge soundtrack, huh? Um, because to me, you know. Anytime I hear like a regular guy sing a song right. that was sung by a great singer before, right. like Ewan McGregor, just kind of, I hope you don't mind. I just like, I'm, I'm not into it. Like it's, it's right. like Kermit doing. How about Elton the Lady John. Marmalade remake though? I mean, that was some legit singers, uh, like kind of tearing cool. it up. Okay, you know what? I'll take that back. Yeah, I just don't like Ewan McGregor singing <laughs> classic <laughs> rock songs. But okay, right, right. Um, gosh, I don't know that I can. I'll think of a hundred more after we're done talking about this, but um, I think probably I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it here for me uh, because this is the only other one that, that comes to my mind right now. And this is something that pop culture has largely forgotten and it's, it's on me for unearthing it. But uh, Bruce Willis once covered respect Respect yourself. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Not needed. No. Was that recorded for like a Diet Right commercial or was it just on a soda commercial? I don't it was know. on some kind of commercial for sure. Yeah. Not. Wow. The world did not need that. Um, yeah. Let's so. go find that on YouTube with all of its 17,000 views. <laughs> there were a couple more that I had just uh, Counting Crows, Big Yellow Taxi. Right. Okay. That's pretty rough. Um, mm, bop, bop, bop. Yeah. Uh, seals fly like an eagle. Like Oof. God bless seal, you know, in some areas. That's back that. to the category of just didn't need to be done. Yeah. Space Jam soundtrack. Uh, Chili Peppers, Higher Ground, Stevie Wonder cover. Right, right. Uh, I like the Chili Peppers. I just, I, I've never not switched the dial when that song came on. Mm. I, I've never listened all the way through it. Um, Guns N' Roses, Live and Let Die, man. Like, how are you going to outdo the original right. Wings version of Live and Let Die? And the other reason I don't like it is that it kind of, it represents the era for me when everything fell apart for Guns N' Roses, the bloated right. era right. of November right. Rain yeah, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And then the last one I had was uh, John Mayer doing Free Falling. And that's that's just because why? <laughs> right. It, you know, it's actually a pretty version. Right. Um, but it's it's a why thing for me. Right, right. Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, the the idea of the unnecessary cover, which yeah. I'm sure there's a distinction to be made there between unnecessary and bad. But think about like a guy like Pat Boone who came out and like was covering Tutti Fruity. Right. You know, with his very sanitized version of rock. And then like as a senior citizen, he made an entire album of heavy metal covers. The the heavy metal covers album makes no sense to me. Like in a way, the Tutti Fruity cover makes sense because that was sort of when there was still these racial lines on radio, right? And you actually were like bringing a song maybe into a new or what you thought was a new. Maybe they didn't realize that white kids were actually listening to you <laughs> right. know black music at the time. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what happens if it's like you know, man, this this song it's just so much fun for me to sing. I just want to do a studio version of it, and it's like the artist just getting in there and, and having having some fun with it and. Yeah, if you want to do that, then I then I, I don't want to sit here and just throw stones at you. Right. But if there's any sort of mindset that says, man, this song needs my treatment. <laughs> <laughs> this song never really kind of reached what it could have been. Right. I, I think we can get it there. <laughs> I, I think you can hear that in the occasional cover. And, right. And that's off-putting to me. Yeah, yeah. I will say, though, speaking of Pat Boone, you and I met him one time backstage Lovely at an award man. show. One of the nicest 
gentleman yes. that uh, I have ever encountered. Yes. Super, super nice guy. We also met Lee Greenwood that night. And Pat Boone was a lovely man. And Pat Boone was a lovely man. Part three. With 40 number one singles to his credit in the last decade, Shane McAnally is already one of the most successful country songwriters and producers of all time. After a brief career as an artist, he reinvented himself as a behind-the-scenes hitmaker when Leanne Womack found success with his song, Last Call. The floodgates soon opened with a steady stream of number one hits, including Somewhere With You and Come Over for Kenny Chesney, Alone With You for Jake Owen, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye for Luke Bryan, The Band Perry's Better Dig 2, and Downtown by Lady Annabellum. Industry and critical recognition quickly followed Shane's commercial success when Miranda Lambert's recording of Mama's Broken Heart and Casey Musgrave's Merry Go Round were concurrently nominated for a Best Country Song Grammy as well as for CMA Song of the Year. Merry Go Round won the category and Shane was named the ACM Songwriter of the Year. Many of his songs have gone on to be recognized by the ACM, CMA, and Grammy Awards, including American Kids by Kenny Chesney, Take Your Time by Sam Hunt, Vice by Miranda Lambert, Drinking Problem by Midland, Female by Keith Urban, Follow Your Arrow and Space Cowboy by Casey Musgraves, and Sam Hunt's Body Like a Backroad, which set a new record by spending 34 weeks at number one on the Billboard Country Chart and was nominated by the CMA for Song of the Year two years in a row. Other highlights from Shane's extensive song catalog include Say You Do and Different for Girls for Dirks Bentley, Gonna Wanna Tonight for Chase Rice, Young and Crazy for Frankie Ballard, Stay a Little Longer for Brothers Osborne, Wild Child for Kenny Chesney, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316 for Keith Urban, I Met a Girl for William Michael Morgan, T-Shirt, Unforgettable, and Marry Me for Thomas Rhett, If I Told You for Darius Rucker, Written in the Sand and Make It Sweet for Old Dominion, Burnout for Midland, Love Ain't for the Eli Young Band, and Down to the Honky Tonk for Jake Owen. The list of additional artists who've recorded his songs includes Reba McIntyre, Florida Georgia Line, Ashley Monroe, Kelly Clarkson, Cheryl Crow, Hunter Hayes, Tim McGraw, Sarah Evans, Little Big Town, Blake Shelton, Carrie Underwood, Marin Morris, Trace Atkins, Tracy Lawrence, Kelsey Ballerini, and George Strait. Shane has been nominated for the ACM Songwriter of the Year Award six out of the last seven years and has won the honor twice. He's a three-time Grammy winner and currently stars as a mentor on the NBC television show Songland, where he works with up-and-coming writers to craft material for artists like John Legend, Will I Am, The Jonas Brothers, Megan Trainer, and Aloe Black. Shane, welcome to Songcraft. Hi. <laughs> First uncomfortable question of the day. That was just really caught me off that guard. Was a, that, was a, that was one of those gotcha questions. I knew you guys were going to really shock me. So, we did receive an advance saying not to do that. <laughs> do not welcome him. He hates that. Do not look at him. <laughs> but it's, it's only going to get worse from here on out. Oh, man. Okay. Well, uh, there we go. So... Tell us a bit about where you grew up and what kind of music you were absorbing as a kid that shaped your sensibilities as a future songwriter. I grew up in Mineral Wells, Texas, which is uh, about 60 miles west of Fort Worth. And um, we listened to country music. I mean, I had a grandpa who loved Marty Robbins and um, my meemaw loved Ann Murray and Conway and um, Barbara Mandrell. So they loved 
country music, but as I look back now and see the influence, they loved a lot of the country music that was happening in the 70s that would be considered probably of the time uh, of a pop, mm-hmm. you know, sensibility. I, you know, when I was a kid, that seemed very traditional, that music. Mm-hmm. But now looking at the cycles in country music and how people, you know, there's the traditionalists that sort of complain about the, the pop uh, influence. Yeah. I have a feeling those same conversations were being had about the, the music I was listening to because that's what my grandparents loved. I literally mm. was driving up here thinking about a way to work a question like that in. You know, <laughs> yeah. thought about that, about the cyclical nature of country and pop and, you know, like, you know, Kenny Rogers. Right. Well, Kenny biggest. Rogers is a great example. Ronnie Millsap. Yeah. Uh, these were the people, Alabama, you know, these were the, the people that really influenced me alongside George Strait because being from Texas, you really you couldn't get around uh, his music right. in, in, at the time that I was really listening to music, you know, in the early 80s and mid 80s. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, the pop sounding stuff uh, was what I was. I mean, you've got exile in there. I was Restless about to heart, say yeah. exile. That's so weird you said <laughs> yeah. that because that is so weird because that's really obscure. It, it is a bit obscure, but I knew you, you would know that. It. I really was <laughs> thinking about exile because, I mean, they were, you know, a, a true um, crossover. Right. I mean, they right. actually had success in pop before yeah. um, they went to country, which is, a, you know, a rare a rarity. We refer to that era as satin baseball jacket country. You, Yeah, exactly. Well, which is, even... I'm getting to really indulge with Midland uh, yeah. that I work with now. Right. And um, it's funny because that, you know, they talk about traditional and loving old country music. And, and I hear that a lot with the people I work with. But when they walked in and said, specifically some of the artists that they mentioned from Conway to uh it went on up to Keith Whitley but you know they really did like name so many people that I was like oh this is actually something I really (laughs) understand (laughs) right right satin baseball jacket country. yeah it it rolled into white blazer country yeah exactly um now I understand you lived in Branson for a time I did when you were a teenager now when you were there were, were you performing I mean I was yeah uh you know I used to make the rounds as a teenager uh, the Opry circuit in Texas and Oklahoma and specifically a show called the Johnny High Country Music Review that um was in Grapevine uh it's where Leanne Rhymes started it's where Leanne Womack uh performed a lot uh onto Miranda Casey Musgraves Maren Morris um, Steve Holy. There's a lot of us that grew up in that area that that performed on this show, and it was sort of the the nucleus to a lot of shows. Like you, that was sort of the main one, and then mm. you would go and play the Grapevine Opry, the Stephenville Opry. Well, being in this circuit, uh, I ended up in a band uh, that was hired to go to Branson and sort of. It was a kids band, and for a time, Leanne Rhymes was actually in it. Um, she played with us for a while while we were in Branson before God, you know, she was so young at the time. It's hard for me to remember exactly what happened, but a lot of times, you know, you forget how young she was because this was way before she hit and she hit when she was 12. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, she was like six, seven years old, but, um, yeah, we were, you know, it it was just this young group of Texas performers and, and, uh, we, we played at the Bob Links theater before a band called the Texans. 
They were a, a singing group that were really big locally in Branson at that time. And we were the young Texans. Nice. <laughs> right. the, the junior varsity Texans. That's exactly right. And we would be out on the main strip in Branson in these LeMay shirts and sequin pants handing out flyers to our show. And I remember one day in particular, we're handing out flyers and we handed a flyer to Brenda Lee. Wow. And I was 15 and the oldest one in the bunch. Wow. And um, none of the other kids knew who that was. Hmm. And I was just like, this is, we're handing this to one of the, the greats. <laughs> Great. You want to come see our show? Right here. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, you eventually made your way to Nashville, I think when you were still a teenager, um, and, and landed a deal with uh, Curb Records in, right. in the late 1990s. Um, and released a handful of singles that you you also co-wrote the highest charting one being are your eyes still blue um which was your only top 40 country hit as an artist and and so this is kind of a a prelude i guess to what would come later but talk about that period um in nashville kind of your your first nashville period in terms of what you learned about songwriting and what you learned about the the nashville music business that would you know serve you well down the road yeah and it really has i mean that that is you know the what i didn't know then was the heartbreak and r the disappointment that seemed to happen all through the 90s for me as an artist would really show up and make sense for me in my career now um it was like going to school i hmm. i dropped out of college to go and and do the music thing in nashville i was 19 and I got a record deal really quick within six months of being there well, wow. and um, a publishing deal alongside that. And then made a record over the next four years that seemed like forever trying to get something that, that would satisfy the label. And I, you know, I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be on the radio and I was really just chasing what I heard on the radio. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't know how to write from an artist's point of view. I didn't have a story and I was, you know, also struggling with my sexuality and in the closet. So there was just a lot of inauthenticity about what I was doing. Hmm. It was really just trying to check the boxes of what do you do to get on the radio? And eventually did make and finish a record and put out some singles, went on a just rigorous radio tour. That was always something I did really well was go into radio stations and uh, meet people. And I had sort of the gift of gab as you'll learn over the next hour, you probably have to <laughs> shut me up. But I, you know, I am, I have an easy way with people. And that was, it was a little confusing because I went on this radio tour really believing that it would amount to all these radio stations playing my music. And it mm. didn't uh, because the music wasn't where it needed to be, but I was really depending on other gifts, you mm. know? And I still think that record to some degree holds up. I mean, I, I'm proud of it. I've never listened to it and cringed. The pictures, it's another thing. <laughs> but, but the music itself, you know, look, for where I was, 23, 24 years old, making a record, it's, it's stuff that, you know, lives on and is, mm. is kind of, uh, th there was a hilarious video that was on CMT for one of the songs. And, um, you know, I had to look. I had to come to terms with the way I look and act in that video. But the music <laughs> is all right. Uh, but, you know, what it, really, but it, what, what it really did set me up for was having a way now with artists who are going through the same thing. Because, you know, that's still exactly the way it's done in mm -hmm. Nashville. Mm -hmm. The radio tour is such an important part. We still very much depend on radio to break an artist. Yeah. And um, I think letting people know, look, this is... This is one aspect of it, mm -hmm. you know, but don't go in there thinking just because you make friends with all these program directors that that's the ticket. 
you have to do all of these things well. Yeah. You have to have the songs. You have to make the right record. You have to tell something that no one else has told. Otherwise, you might have a hit, but you won't have a career. Oh. And um, I think the fact that I came from that, it, it makes it a little easier for me to say to people and that they can hear it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you ultimately moved out of Nashville and relocated to Los Angeles. Uh, and it was eight years before you reemerged as a successful songwriter with Leanne Womack's top 15 country hit Last Call in 2008. I bet you're in a bar Listening to a country song Glass of Johnny Walker in With no one to take you home They're probably closing down Saying no more alcohol I bet you're about that period in LA and um, how your life and career were unfolding prior to your return to Nashville and the success that came there well the move to LA was not uh, it wasn't calculated I actually had made a couple records well I'd made one record that had come out was halfway through another record for another record label and it just kind of fell apart it was just one of those things where nothing was working in Nashville and I chalked it up to you know <laughs> people not being ready, like me being ahead of the sound or, you know, whatever excuse I could come up with, they're not going to play me because of this or that. And, um, so I came to LA to write and I was just going to be here for a few weeks and it, it turned into eight years. And what started was, first of all, there was a process of coming out that started to happen because I'd never been anywhere where there were gay people. Honestly, I'd never been exposed to that. And I had been so closeted that coming to a place like West Hollywood, um, people weren't scared and hiding. There was, you know, there was a community and I met like-minded friends and dated. And so that I think is what started to, to really develop a sound because I was writing songs by myself at that point. I, I wasn't in the music community in LA. Um, but I wrote for eight years by myself. I, I started playing at the Viper Room, Cat Club. Um, I played the Hotel Cafe. And I had a little following of a few hundred people that would come see me every time I played. And I would try out new songs. And in that eight years, through people saying they were going to invite a person from a record label or they knew a publisher, nothing happened. Hmm. Not one person came in that could make a difference. And it it really did just kind of creep up on me that I was like, I've been doing this for eight years, working at a bar. What is going on? And then the Leanne Womack thing happened in a riding trip back to Nashville. Wow. Um, it was, I, I needed that eight years to sort of get over my resentment that Nashville didn't read from the script that I'd been writing my whole life. When I got there, mm-hmm. it didn't line up the way I thought it was supposed to. And those know? shows, those hotel cafe shows and Viper room, it, was that to, to further you as the artist or were you already thinking about, I, I want my songs to land? No, else? it was definitely for the artist thing, but I also was so sort of wrung out at that point that I did not care. Yeah. I just wanted to do music give me something. for a living. And I used to pray, you know, for another dream. It just got to the point where it's like, show me something else I'm good at because mm. all I can think about is writing songs. Mm. Um, you know, it was, it would wake me up in my sleep. It would wake me up in the morning. Uh, I just always had song ideas, but couldn't figure out why I couldn't make the artist thing or get them placed. 
Yeah. And it was just the time. I mean, you know, it's different for different people. I, I wouldn't change it now. I used to really wish that I could have seen a flash forward so I could have enjoyed those times a little more because I, I see most of that as somebody who's really struggling and really depressed. Mm. Um, so now when I meet songwriters in that part, I try to just encourage them to, to take it in. You know, I, I've been writing with some young folks in L.A. that are so similar to what I was then, just trying to make their way in the hotel cafes or trying to meet other songwriters. And I just, like, it makes me smile. I'm like, God, I wish I could enjoy. Yeah. I wish I could have enjoyed this time, and I hope you do. Yeah. Because yeah. it won't always be like this, and um, some wonderful things will happen, you know, if, when you stay in this business, and, and you never know where you're going to end up. This yeah. is not where I thought I would be, but it's much better than I could have dreamed for myself. Well, so you had the the success with Leanne Womack, and there were actually a couple years after that single where there wasn't, a whole lot going on in terms of, of chart activity for you. But then it's like the floodgates opened at the end of 2010 and there's yeah. this steady stream of a half dozen number one hits um, somewhere with you and come over, which were both chart toppers for Kenny Chesney alone with you by Jake Owen kiss tomorrow. Goodbye for Luke Bryan, the band Perry's better dig Two, and downtown by lady Annabellum. Now there's this kind of phenomenon where a writer can be doing what they do. You know, sometimes for years. And then all of a sudden it's like somebody flips a switch. Everybody starts paying attention and they're the writer of the moment. What do you attribute to that kind of first rush of real commercial success after, as you say, you'd been writing songs for many, many, many years? Well, I had, you know, this phenomenon of timing that happened for me was that Right alongside me having my first real commercial boom, I was working with Casey Musgraves right Mm -hmm. when she got to Nashville. And so I had my feet started to be really planted in this commercial moment where Kenny Chesney recorded a few songs. And he really was the reason. I mean, I always say he sort of anointed me when, you know, when Kenny says this guy is doing something worth listening to, Mm -hmm. everybody else sort of follows suit. Mm -hmm. Um, but the timing of the, the Casey stuff, that first record that happened in 2013, mm-hmm. it, it just was so, it, it couldn't have been planned uh, that I would get this credible side that people would also see me as somebody who was writing songs and developing artists that had real credibility, yeah. you know, alongside the commercial success. I, I couldn't have ever, like I said, planned it. It was just timing. And I think that because I was on both sides of things that people be, be, saw me as someone that could take something that might be considered artistic and make it commercial. Hmm. Um, if that makes sense. I, sure. I feel like I was really lucky to get some strange songs recorded. A lot of my friends that came up with me at the same time, their songs like that they may have written like better dig Two or mama's broken heart. Those songs sit on a shelf you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. really hard to get people to write those kind of songs. Uh, but with me, for some reason, those songs were getting recorded, which mm. gave me a lane. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't think it was because those songs were any better than the ones that, that you know, people in the same, I don't know, commercial vein as me. They just, it, it is one of those things, a lot of, I, yeah, I use Ashley Gorley as an example because he's had so much commercial success. And I've written songs with him that, 
I think could be considered song of the year every year and ballads and story songs. For some reason, that's not what people go to him for. Hmm. They depend on him for these hooky melodies and right. surefire hits. And so it was just a different, it was just a different thing with me. People yeah. were sort of, they had expectations and they would take chances on songs that I was on. Hmm. And that really was just a blessing. Um, and, and not, it, it wasn't calculated. I want to focus in on a, a pair of singles that were released uh, in late 2012, early 2013. Um, Casey Musgraves' Merry Go Round, which you wrote with Casey and, and Josh Osborne. Mama's hooked on Mary Kay, brother's hooked on Mary Jane, and daddy's hooked on Mary two doors down. Mary, Mary, quack and schwerry, we get bored so we get married, just like dust we settle. And then Miranda Lambert's Mama's Broken Heart, which you also wrote with Casey and Brandy Clark. Go and fix your makeup, girl. It's just a breakup running. Hide your crazy and start acting like a lady. Cause I raise you better, gotta keep it together even when you fall apart. But this ain't my mama's broken heart. And even though you kind of had plenty of hits before then, those two songs really catapulted you to like serious awards recognition. Both right. of them were nominated for CMA Song of the Year and the Grammy for Best Country Song. Merry Go Round wound up winning the Grammy. Uh, you also won the ACM's Songwriter of the Year Award that year. So it's kind of like, you know, all of a sudden everything just just really blew wide open. And, and you mentioned kind of your association with, with Casey and working with her. Obviously, she's your co-writer on, on both those songs. Talk a little bit more about how you guys first kind of began working together and what do you think it is about the two of you together that just really made the secret sauce? Yeah. Well, I, when I met Casey, um, it was instant. We, I love, first of all, my favorite singers, my very favorite singer of all time is Leanne Womack. Mm -hmm. um, she's always been my favorite. That was a, a complete uh, amazing blessing coincidence that last call was my first single yeah. uh, i loved her for years i said she was my muse and i was writing songs for her and she just didn't know it <laughs> um so then you also put dolly parton in the mix mm -hmm. who before leanne that was the voice yeah. that you know completely like made my day mm -hmm. and along comes casey musgraves who to me is if possible, both of those voices, hmm. you know, she doesn't necessarily have the um, power of a Leanne Womack, or maybe she doesn't have some of the country nuance of Dolly. She had her own thing, right? but it, she had so much of both of them that when she would sing something back to me, it was every musical influence I'd ever loved. You know, it's hmm. Willie Nelson's in there. And she also has this, um, grace about her her phrasing that would bring up those stylists like Ann Murray and the people that I loved through my grandparents. Right. Um, she. It was mostly in the beginning about our our Texas background, mm -hmm. growing up in the same area at different times, but very similar stories um, to what brought us to Nashville. 
and, and her voice. I mean, I, I just still, it, it just completely takes over my heart. Yeah. Um, when I hear her sing anything, it just feels like it comes from a place that she's not thinking about. Hmm. It's, it's guttural. And yeah. um, so that was what started it the first night we met. Uh, we wrote two songs, um, one of which ended up on um, pageant material, the second record. Mm-hmm. And it, we were just off and running. Wow. And it was sort of any combination the two of us would get into. If we were with Luke Laird, who we wrote a lot of songs with, if we were Brandy Clark, if we were Josh Osborne, those songs all had their own thing because mm. those writers would bring different elements. Casey and I didn't have a lot of luck writing just the two of us. Huh. And I think that was because we would not stop talking. <laughs> you know, we just, and we're still like that if we get to spend time together, which is rare now. But if we get into like a late night text conversation or something, we'll find ourselves two hours in <laughs> and just, laughing at the the most you know mundane stuff right, but we right. we see the world similarly i'm just i'm i'm in awe of her she it's very strange to have a friend that you're that close to but also you are a, a super fan <laughs> and i really am a yeah. super fan of her her take the way she's done all of this yeah. has been and so many times along the way i thought she was wrong <laughs> you know with things that she would say no to songs that she wouldn't record the way she wanted to record a song, I would feel like, ah, I really wish you would just just go this much more commercial, just mm. a yeah. tad bit. Yeah. But sticking to her guns, look what she's created. And yeah. she has really shown me that it, more than anyone else, for someone who struggled for a long time to find themselves, that would, you know, through my fear of my sexuality or just anything I just I, you know I just struggled for a long time to feel comfortable in my skin she did that at such a young age and I really feel like a lot of of my coming into my own was by watching someone just say no this is the way I'm doing it I understand why you think that but I have to do it my way you know uh, another song from Casey's debut album same trailer different park was follow your arrow which it, we're talking about you know following your arrow yeah. at this point um that won you casey and your co-writer brandy clark a cma song of the year award were you a writer on nine of the 12 songs on, on that album, but you also co-produced the record with Casey and Luke Laird. Talk about how you got into producing, and, and I'd like to know a little bit more about the relationship between being a producer and a songwriter and how one kind of informs the other for you. Well, I never thought of myself as a producer uh, before that record because I was intimidated by the fact that I don't have a, a great set of technical skills. Mm. I play guitar enough to write. I play piano even less than I play guitar, but still can chord out a song. The producers, I'm putting that in air quotes, that, that I knew of, the Dan Huffs of the world, right. they could pick up any instrument and tell a drummer exactly what beat to play on and you know which snare sounded the best. I had none of that skill set. Yeah. So I was intimidated by the idea. It never crossed my mind. What happened around the same time as Casey is that I formed this great friendship with five other songwriters 
Brandy Clark, Josh Osborne, uh, Matthew Ramsey, now of Old Dominion, Trevor Rosen, now of Old Dominion, and Matt Jenkins. Um, so the six of us used to jokingly call ourselves the hit shitters. <laughs> and we were the only ones who thought we were shitting hits. Um, <laughs> and that was sort of our joke because we didn't have any hits. We would book these demo sessions and I just sort of got nudged to the board. We used to do demos over at this uh, guys. I still do demos there at Ben Phillips's place in Berry Hill in Nashville. And I can just, um, I can just remember almost actually physically being pushed up to the board. Like, you know, like Matt Ramsey saying, go up there and talk to the bass player. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't know how to talk to a bass player. He's like, no, just tell him what you just told me. Hmm. And it might be, some word that that would sound ridiculous but you know like they always joke that i would say i need it crunchier i need it to sound crunchier i need it to sound shinier i need it to sound you know they yeah. they swear that i used to even throw colors out to the musicians like that guitar chord needs to sound orange well anyway i found some translators among these amazing musicians in nashville and started to find a safe place in that language and so around the same time, Luke and Casey and I started doing demos over at Luke's uh, place, Luke Laird's place. And we just kind of fell into something natural where Luke would build these tracks and he could really talk to musicians. And I would sort of instinctually just say, no, that turnaround needs to be longer or let's do a cold intro or, or you know, whatever it was. And so Casey, when she was shopping for a deal, her, um, her only stipulation was that the demos that we were pitching, the, the things that Luke and myself and Casey had produced together, that those be the start of a record, hmm. that they wouldn't go and look for other producers. And that was a bold move, uh, you know, and it's the kind of move she's made over and over and over in her career. But at the time, uh, it gave me so much uh, room, hmm. uh, you know, instantly, as soon as that record came out, I had, you know, sort of that moment where people were like, oh, he can produce records. I didn't do a bunch because what I found was in going in with other people that, you know, because people get excited because she won all these awards. And so they're like, oh, let's use those producers. Yeah. But that was just the right combination of people. Mm. And it doesn't work in every situation. Right. And what I really found was I wasn't great at going in when someone had a bunch of songs that I wasn't a part of because the reason that worked for me was I was there for the creation of the songs too. Right. Uh, and yeah. so I could kind of hear the production as we were doing it. Well, speaking of production, uh, you and Zach Crowell co-produced Sam Hunt's Montevallo album, which was nominated for a best country album Grammy and spawned several hit singles, including leave the night on break up in a small town and take your time, which not only topped the country charts, but crossed over to become a top 20 pop hit and picked up a nomination for the CMA Song of the Year. about that particular project it wasn't that different than the Casey project in the beginning because it was just that I was writing songs with Sam 
and we wrote for years and actually had a lot of success together before we started making his record. Hmm. And Josh Osborne and, and Sam and I were really on a roll. And then what happens is you start to realize you have a group of songs that are starting to tell a story. Sam, like Casey, has such a strong sense of himself that he wasn't going to do it in a way that didn't feel completely authentic and didn't tell his story the right way. And that took a long time. And ultimately, I cut some things on him uh, the way we had done demos with the live band and using the same band. Mm -hmm. And he, there was still an element that he was missing. And we could never quite figure out exactly what it was because I do things in a studio in a more traditional way. I, I work with live musicians. I can't sit down at a board and build a track. And he needed a piece of that because he heard this R&B sort of more pop influence mm -hmm. that I couldn't get all the way there. And so in sort of looking for another collaborator, he met Zach Crowell. And what Zach would do on that first record is take the tracks that I had worked on in the studio and add these pieces that sort of satisfied that part of what Sam was hearing. Yeah. I do think that Sam is extremely underrated uh, as a musician and songwriter because he became so famous and because of the way he looks. Uh, funny enough, that I think hindered his credibility. People, mm. you know, it took a long time for people to take him seriously. Mm. I still don't think he's taken as seriously as he will be in the long run. Huh. Because yeah. he is, uh, he's a true artist. And yeah. I don't just say that because he's my friend and because I worked with him. I mean, he blows me away. The things that I don't get to be a part of and the things that I hear that I'm not a part of are those things that I'm like, God, I wish I'd been there that day. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, we've had that concern with our podcast. We're like, is anybody going to take us seriously? Because we're just so good looking, so good looking. and yeah. so charming. I know, know? How, I know how, <laughs> how dumb that sounds, and, and, and Sam would roll his eyes at that. Uh, no, it's, it's true. But it though. is true. It's right. one of those things where people don't know how good he is. He's, he's even to some degree downplayed that with, right. you know, the beard and the hat. And it, it's just one of those things that t only time will tell that story right. as he continues to build a, a real legacy. I, you know, he's, he's just not a fly by night and people think because it's taken so long for him to make another record that that's an indication of him not having nah. more songs, but really it's because he wants the standard for him is so high yeah, yeah. that it's uh, it's impossible to predict when he's going to click with something, but when he does, it's like body, like a back road. Yeah. Something tells him the time is right. Huh. Wow. And you know, he's, he's it's, definitely gearing up. It's kind of indicative of our cynical culture, you know, nowadays where I think there was a time when these questions wouldn't have been asked. You know, you, know, you had actors and musicians that were impossibly good looking, yeah. you know, throughout. It's true. You know, um, I think that's right. People are, are jaded to a point that if you look like that, you can't be that good. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, it seems funny to even talk about him that way. And like I said, if he ever heard this, he would roll his <laughs> eyes at it. But, but it's just the truth in trying to explain to people that um, don't know him. And people will go, Where, why, did, why isn't he putting music out? Does he not have any other songs? And it's like, oh, my Lord, if he knew the songs <laughs> that this boy has written. Right. It's just he wants it to be 
so impossibly right. Yeah. Um, you and know. he might also be having a life, you know. There's he, and he <laughs> is, and he is, right. right. Um, you know, we talked about Kenny Chesney and his role in your career, and you've had a good bit of success with him. You know, he's at the top of the chart several times with your songs, including American Kids in 2014. We were Jesus, Sammy, blue jean baby, born in the USA. Trailer park truck stop, fade a little map, dots New York to L.A. We were teenage dreaming, front seat leaning, baby, come give me a kiss. Put me on the cover of the Rolling Stone, uptown, down home, American kids. That one went on to earn a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song and a Song of the Year nomination from both the CMA and the ACM. I don't think we have a question that doesn't have the word Grammy or CMA <laughs> or ACM in it. Um, but I'd love to hear about the background of that song specifically, but also raises the question for me of, you know, when, when you enter a, a writing session, do you tend to come in with, you know, some sort of idea that you want to really direct toward an artist or, or do you like to just let inspiration strike and flow in the moment? Yeah, I don't usually go in with, uh, if it's, if it's just with writers that right. aren't an artist, mm -hmm. um, I don't usually go in writing for someone that's never worked for me. I think the success with Kenny you know, Kenny and I have, for one, we have a similar way of singing. And I think that really served me as a songwriter and him hearing himself in the songs. You sing the demos. Yeah. yeah. And we have a similar range. Uh, we have a similar way of phrasing. And I think that's also because we grew up listening to the same things. But that has been one of the keys to success is that when he would take a chance on something, like the first hit I had with him was somewhere with you it was it was not like anything he had done before but because he heard me singing it I think he knew he could do it yeah um and so that 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 continues I mean even in the record he's making now I think that when he hears me there's a safety in that that we can take chances together because it's worked in the past yeah well, the massive hits kept coming in 2014 and 2015, including Say You Do for Dirk Bentley, Gonna Want It Tonight for Chase Rise, Young and Crazy for Frankie Ballard, Stay a Little Longer for Brothers Osborne, Wild Child for Kenny Chesney, and John Cougar, John Deere, John 316 for Keith Urban. That's one of those songs. That's one of those titles that you go, oh, I haven't heard that title before. You know, it really kind of jumps out at you. Um, I'd love to kind of hear where that came from specifically, but also in a more general sense. Uh, do you typically write from a title or do you start with a melodic idea or is it just kind of? Just I depends? usually do start with a title. Uh, I bring in a lot of titles. Doesn't mean that's the ones we're going to write that day, but I like to just be prepared and say, oh, I was thinking of this. That can sometimes spark someone else going, I had an idea that was like that, but what about this twist? What's really crazy about John Cougar, John Deere, John 316 is that is one of the rare times where we did not have a hook. <laughs> we started writing to a track that Ross Copperman had built and we started throwing out these references and I never do that because it's so scary to me because the song was taking such a great shape that, it, you know, like my heart's like beating fast. Like you have to have a wrap up in yeah. country. Yeah. You don't get to just end the chorus with an ooh 
or with something, you know, when you're starting a chorus with, I'm a child of backseat freedom, you better have something at the end that knocks people out. And I was really nervous. And uh, Josh and I were just throwing everything against the wall. We're writing the second verse. We still don't have a hook. And the line, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316, was, it worked. And I think we started with just two of the three. And then, you know, one of the others, I don't remember the order. But that was a moment where I was like, oh, God, there's, there's our hook. I can right. exhale. Let's move that to the end of the chorus <laughs> because that is as good a payoff as, you know, that sounds like something we came in with. I love that it's John Cougar and not Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah, you know, you know I, mean? I, I don't, it's funny. I, I think that I feel like John Cougar was just always there, so yeah. we never even considered. <laughs> yeah. You know, like in the song, I, I feel like John Cougar play, you know, Josh and I referenced John Cougar a lot, um, and that was more what sort of influenced us. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love Johnny Cash, but I've the references to Johnny Cash for me, it has to be so perfect right. because mm-hmm. I've heard it right. yeah. so many times. And I think that's what makes it feel authentic. Yeah, you know, to to use John Cougar, and also just sort of knowing, you know, the age group that we're in, our listeners are in. You know, it's going to be a little bit closer. And a little bit less right. of just, man, we just pulled in an icon just so you could have an icon in here. Exactly. Right, right. And it feels that way now even. I mean, honestly, the references to George Strait, who I've referenced myself, but it's just, it, it kind of starts to feel inauthentic, even if it's so real to the person right. writing the song. Right. If you're referencing George Strait at this point, it has to be some spectacular way you're using his name yeah. or my brain checks out right, right. Like, I, i've heard this right yeah. you know yeah um well casey musgrave's second album pageant material was released in the summer of 2015 featuring the single biscuits which billboard magazine picked as the best country song of album, which you co-produced, was named among the best of the year by All Music, NPR, Pop Matters, Time, Spin, and Rolling Stone. For all of her accolades and success, though, mm-hmm. Follow Your Arrow is still Casey's only single to have squeaked into the top 10 at, at country radio. Um, and you are one of those rare writers who has absolutely dominated the, the country charts, but also been very involved with these kind of projects that, I mean... Casey is certainly successful, but also she's a critical darling, you know, and and has gained all this um, kind of critical acceptance. And I think it's rare that you find a writer who kind of lives in both those worlds. I think normally you kind of it's like somebody kind of chooses one road or the other. Um, And so I'm curious, because you're a really rare bird in that regard, how do you measure success for yourself? What do you consider success as in terms of your own standard as a writer? Yeah, well, I mean, both, honestly. I mean, I feel like having a big hit felt like success to me. And then having, being on those best of lists or winning Grammys feels mm-hmm. like a big success to me too. I, you know, I would love to say that awards don't matter to me. That wouldn't be the truth. I, um, 
I really have been validated by that and mm -hmm. the amount of attention that my songs have been given in that way because I grew up with this sort of obsession with uh, award shows. Hmm. And so to me, that was the pinnacle. If you yeah. could win CMA Song of the Year or if you could win a Grammy, you know, those things felt really important to me. And I kind of can't shake that childhood fascination with that. Sure. Um, and I love trophies. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it worked out for me. But, but really all of it, felt like a success I will say that with Casey and songs like Biscuits particularly when it came out and got so much critical acclaim it does hurt when those songs don't make any indent hmm. in the commercial world because my thought always was with a song like that if people heard it mm -hmm. imagine what would happen yeah if this is what the the tastemakers think of it yeah right um but i've gotten over that truthfully you know the pageant material was i feel like the best record i've been a part of um song for song i think it has some of the best things i've ever been a part of hmm. but it was the least well received in the commercial world huh. of, yeah. of everything and that's hard because we still measure that. I mean, it's still, especially when you have other things around it that are doing so well, yeah. it somehow says maybe this isn't as good hmm. um, because it does feel like people pay more attention to the sales and the popularity over those best of lists. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it is disappointing when those things don't find their commercial place but because that's happened to me with a few records mm -hmm. uh, another record i worked a lot on was uh brandy clark's 12 stories i wrote a lot of songs on that record I yeah said, i think song for song that's one of the greats fantastic know? record and um you know she's still building a career and building a name but it didn't have a place at radio yeah. and as commercial songwriters we all gauge so much of our uh validity yeah. from from that so mm -hmm. we you know you kind of have to just go, God, now it all makes sense because I was able to walk that line and do both. Um, what a gift. Yeah. It, it, it's funny, you know, at the risk of, of uh, putting my foot in my mouth, I'm not a huge fan of, of contemporary country music. Yeah, I mean, um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I am very much a fan of, like, Casey and Brandy, right. um, and I love those, those songs. So it's funny because, to me, it even maybe certain artists who are more mainstream or who I might have written off. It's like when I find out that a guy like you has written the songs, it makes me more open to going and listening to some of that real commercial stuff. Yeah. It's going like, well, I know this guy's a great songwriter and he's got a great sensibility because I know his name from this stuff. So in a way, it's almost like having that sort of critical success almost makes for a bit of a wider audience for the stuff that already has a huge audience, but maybe has been dismissed by some people as too commercial or whatever. It, it, it allows you to look at it with, with kind of fresh eyes and, and remove a little of the prejudices that might I do that. come along with it. I mean, it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I don't know that I deserve that sort of credit because the truth is I'm making a living. And sometimes some of those records that I end up on and some of the songs that I write on any given day are for that, Yeah. you know, because there are, there, there is a, fulfillment to writing something uh on a tuesday that is just fun hmm. you know it's like not every <laughs> i think for, they found for us, your listeners we're in los angeles and it's occasionally there's like the high-speed chase <laughs> the, it seems the to happen helicopter. over this house a lot 
lot. Yeah. Honestly. Um, so um. We, we just had uh, we just had a helicopter fly. It sounded like about five feet over yeah. the property. Yeah, basically land on the roof. Right. But I think we're fine. Uh, no, but I, I, I do get that because I do the same thing if I hear that Lori McKenna has written on something or if right. Natalie Hemby is a part of something. It makes me more likely to go and check it out. Yeah. Right. But we are all in a business, and that was, sure. you know, what I decided to be as my business. So right. uh, there are times and songs that you've even mentioned that I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm embarrassed of because it's part of what I do, but I don't go back and listen to them. Sure. You know? it, it really does become ridiculous at some point how many number one hits that we're just kind of breezing over. Um, you feel, feel like we should stop and, and have a conversation about every one, but we can't. Um, but you've got plenty of other huge singles that kept coming. I Met a Girl for William Michael Morgan, T-Shirt for Thomas Rhett, Different for Girls by Dirk Bentley with L. King, If I Told You by Darius Rucker, and Vice, another Miranda Lambert single that earned you, and here we go with ACM again, ACM nomination for yeah. Song of the Year, and a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. So that's another one that you wrote with Josh Osborne, who's a frequent collaborator yeah. of yours. Um, tell us a bit about that song, about Vice, and also just a little bit about the chemistry that works so well between you and Josh in particular. Well, Josh and I have just a complete, oh God, I don't even know the word, it's sync sync of there's like a we we finish each other's sentences mm. we trust each other completely if josh signs off on something that i'm on the fence about i know it's okay and vice versa uh he changed my career vastly as many hits as i was having and things that were happening for me when you put the two of us together whether it be on songs that he was or wasn't on i was starting to write to a new standard what would Josh think of this? Yeah. And um, with Vice, particularly, what was happening at that point, I had never written with Miranda, and neither had Josh. We got to a point where when a, a high-level artist like that would would ask if we would write, we really always try to do it together. Yeah. And so with Miranda, when she asked to write, uh, I just really felt like, and she may have asked us both, but I know I felt safe knowing I was doing something that big with Josh in the yeah. room. I yeah. knew we would get something, and we did. We got two songs that day and two more, uh, like a couple of days later. And with Vice, you know, that song is such a cool story that I know that she's tired of talking about her divorce. Uh, and, and not to be uh, sensationalized this, but the morning she came in to write the first time with us, was the day the news broke of mm. her divorce. Mm. Now, mind you, they had been in the process for a long time. It right. wasn't news to her, right. but it was news to us. And so I didn't think she would come. Yeah. And she came in as if nothing had happened. And so as we got to know each other and talk, and she had recorded songs at that point of mine, but we we had never written together and yeah. and we started to get comfortable and i said honestly i cannot believe you came today it tells me so much about who you are as an artist and a writer and she said well you know that's been going on for a long time it was just that today was the day that the press was informed and hmm. so it's big news today but we started to write a song about the way people what people were saying about her and the rumors that were going around it sort of was from the point of view of like, what if she was that character? Hmm. What if she really was just looking for another vice? If well. if that was what you know, and yeah. and every time she would sing a line, or we would come up with something, we'd throw something out. Like I remember specifically the line about uh, 
but shoes in her hand walking home in the morning. I was like, you will not say that. Like, <laughs> we will not get this cut because of that line. You won't cut this. Yeah. And she was like, watch me. <laughs> and it wasn't that long after that she made the weight of these wings. And very soon after the record was made, they called and told us that was going to be the first single. We could have, I mean, it was so shocking to me. That song seemed like maybe the last song on a record. Yeah. Hmm. You know, that you might hear. But yeah. for her to say, this is the first thing I'm saying after all of this, wow. hmm. I just thought it was just like brilliant artistry. It's yeah. like yeah. letting us in just enough to hmm. make us want to hear more. Yeah. Um, you know, she's just about the best we've ever had w- across the board yeah. at, at everything. I, you know, Miranda is in the pinnacle of her career now, so we don't always see when we're among legends. Hmm. But you can put her career up against Loretta, Dolly, Reba. I, I just don't think that anyone's going to have covered as much ground when it's all said and done as Miranda. Well. Yeah. Well, um, well, another song that you and Josh collaborated on this time with Zach Crowell and, and Sam Hunt was Sam's Body Like a Back Road. And that song set a new record by spending 34 weeks at number one on the Billboard chart, crossed over to become a top 10 pop hit as well, was nominated for Top Country Song at the Billboard Music Awards, earned a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, picked up an ACM nomination for Song of the Year, and was nominated by the CMA for Song of the Year two years in a row in 2017 and 2018. Anytime that something is that successful, there's bound to be criticism and controversy. Um, And we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I want to ask you more directly. Some observers criticized that song for straying too far from the boundaries of what's traditionally been considered country music. Um, How do you think about the balance of working in a genre that very much prizes tradition while also wanting to be a creative person who does push the boundaries and does want to be a part of the music's evolution into the next era? It's such a good question because it is definitely something that has come up in my career so many times. I think because of my association with Casey early on and bands like Midland people, want to think of me as a pure traditionalist and then see how many things that I've done that are on the other side of things. I'm a song person at heart. Hmm. It is always about the song. Um, Taste wise, I still love old country. That's, you know, making those Midland records has, it's almost been like play to me Hmm. because it's, it's like getting to do your absolute favorite thing. Mm. And almost, it almost seems like a game, like how much, how far can we go that way? Yeah. Um, with the others though, like with Body Like a Back Road, I think that first of all, it makes me laugh when people talk about that being a pop song because it's Body Like a Back Road. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that is the countryest title I've ever heard. And <laughs> Sam had that hook and we knew the moment he said it. Well, first of all, what we did was Google because I couldn't believe there wasn't a song with that title. It just huh. sounded like it was a hit. Yeah. Right. Um, 
And Sam is country. I mean, his, his nature is country. He, he is a country boy. He just has influences outside of that, like we all do. And um, so how to walk that line is that I am a traditionalist at heart because I like songs that are written on a guitar. I, I mean, I am, I'm so drawn to the Lori McKenna's of the world who still write these hundred percenters like Humble and Kind and tell these stories that they're not leaning on any political part to get a song recorded. Because the truth is, one of the reasons we all collaborate so much is because it gives the song a better chance, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, of getting heard. But, but when it comes to thinking about what is and isn't country, it just feels like it's a conversation that they've been having for decades just for the sake of having it because mm. it fluctuates so hard. I don't, I would say this. I, I do wish that there were, the genre was multi-layered where we didn't have to worry about how someone like Chris Stapleton gets played alongside Florida Georgia Line. I understand why playlists, that's confusing. Right. You know, that's they, true. The rock has alternative rock or right. modern rock or, you know, and then, same and, thing and in pop. even when you go into to R&B and urban and yeah. pop, those are all offshoots of each other. Yeah. Country is has all been lumped together. And I think in some ways it served us because it, it keeps our numbers up, hmm. you know, but because if you start splitting off, those percentages go down. And I love to think of a world where people that listen to Chris Stapleton also play Florida Georgia Line. But I just... I think that's where the hang-up is because you have this uh, assumed insane credibility with, I mean, Chris Stapleton is legitimate. I, I just meant people put on him this tag of mm-hmm. credibility. You yeah. are an artist. Right. And then they, with Florida Georgia Line, they're, they're fun mm-hmm. and it's yeah. only a party. Right. Um, and so I do think people listen to both, hmm. but they don't want them side by side. And, uh, so I don't, I, I've been lucky that I've gotten to do a lot of both. Yeah. Uh, and I don't have strong opinions about it. You know, a lot of people have been asking a lot of questions about this old town road. Right. Um, I didn't hear the song for the longest time. In fact, I was commenting on the song at the ACMs that I'd never even heard it (laughs) because it just kept coming up. So my response was if people are coming to country music because of this, then I'm all for it. Yeah. If that brings people over. You know, Shania, people had so many problems with that. But what she did sure. was she brought Garth. You know, Garth is hard because he was, he's such a phenomenon that, you know, he, he really was country, but he was right. also bringing over pop fans. Yeah. yeah. But people like Shania along the way, you know, she, and, and now even Taylor Swift, she's having a huge pop career, but people still think of her as coming up in Nashville. Mm-hmm. So I do think it brings people over yeah. to yeah. see what's going on. And maybe Old Town Road does that too. I'm still sometimes a little bothered. Maybe I'm jealous <laughs> that people will say to me, I don't like country music, but I do love Old Town Road. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, that's not country. I don't even know what that is. It's like, yeah. a, it feels to me like a cartoon version of country. Hmm. And it is what pop people sort of want country to be. Yeah. Um, it's novelty. But right. again, if it brings people over, I think it's valuable. Well, you know, I, talking about this this whole kind of uh, relationship between sort of the, the popular side of country and the traditional stuff. I mean, your next big hit after Body Like a Back Road was a very traditional country song, Drinking Problem with Midland. People say I got a drinking problem. That ain't no reason to stop. People 
Um, that earned you another Grammy nomination for Best Country Song, as well as CMA and ACM nominations for Single of the Year. I think it was the top song in the Interplanetary Galactic Commission <laughs> for Music Appreciation yeah. as well. That was, I was really proud of that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, in terms of musical aesthetics, I mean, there is so much variety in your work. Um, but you don't always work within a particular sound. You don't always work with the same writers. What do you think that you bring to the table as a co-writer yeah. that people sort of depend on and, and lean on? I really want there to be, even in, an, even in an up-tempo party song, I need there to be a moment that people were surprised by or find themselves in. I mm. have to hear myself in it. And drinking problem is probably aesthetically, if that could even be a word used for music, the closest thing to everything that I love hmm. put together. Yeah. I think the hook is timeless. It could have been written 40 years ago. It could be written 30 years from now, you know, and that was Josh Osborne's hook. He actually heard that line in an old episode of MASH. <laughs> um, awesome. You know, people say I got a drinking problem, but I got no problem drinking at all. And that surprise at the end of that chorus dropping that and letting people have a quick reaction and then going right into that post. Mm. Um, that for me is the greatest payoff because you see people react to, but I got no problem drinking at all. They keep on talking. Right. You don't even give them a second to sort of let it soak in. By the time they're reacting to that, they're like, Oh, you're in another section. <laughs> that is what I love to yeah. do. And, um, surprising people, it, surprising the listener is, is what I think, is the biggest payoff for me. And I think that is what I bring as a co-writer over and over. I think my, my collaborators would say that I want to take a left turn. Yeah. And um, even if it's in a traditional box, right. even if that sounds as country as it does, we have a left turn there that you wouldn't expect in a song like that. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Well, contemporary country music is often criticized for playing it safe. And it seems that, you know, popular music in general probably doesn't tackle weighty topics maybe in the way that that it once did um but you have shown a willingness to address some some real life stuff in your music um, and i'm thinking in particular of the song female which was a, a hit for keith urban earned you yet another acm nomination for song of the year And that one really emerged as kind of this empowerment anthem during the early days of the Me Too movement. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that particular song. Yeah, you know, that started out as, a, as the title. And I was writing with uh, Ross Copperman and Nicole Gallion. And Nicole is so good with, we always tease her because she has written, she has a Miranda Lambert song called, uh, Miranda Lambert song called Girls. She has All the Pretty Girls. She has Boy. She has Fert Lee Bryce. She has, you know, just over and over, she's dealt with these gender sort of songs that play on that, mm -hmm. the, the specifics of that and what it means to grow up that, you know, a boy or a girl. Or the, and I think that she handles it so well. And so I had the word female. Yeah. And it sounds so clinical. <laughs> but, I, but it looked cool. 
and it was one I hadn't seen and she lit up I mean when I said it she was like oh my gosh like I know how to do this and so Ross started working on a track and you know I'm still not honestly that's one song that it's hard to describe a feeling when you feel like other songwriters might not love a song of yours, hmm. but they don't say it because we wouldn't <laughs> say it to each other. Right? Right. But you know from them saying nothing, that song has that effect on other songwriters. Wow. Huh. And I, I say that because I know of songs that get a lot of attention that I think, huh, it's not the way I would have done that. I think it was a hard title to write and we, we did our best with it. But it, in the long run, of when Keith recorded it and got a little backlash because it was like a man singing, we thought it was cool that a guy would sing that right. as opposed to a girl. And I think he had all the best intentions, but I'm just not sure it landed hmm. um, the right way, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, right. And yeah, I think that, uh, that honestly, it's one of those songs that it, it's led to some other songs that I think might be even better versions of it. Hmm. But um. I'm super proud of it because I think we tackled something early on yeah, um, and in a different way. But sometimes just, you know, when I talk about that left turn, mm-hmm. yeah. sometimes you have to really make sure you're not just taking a left turn for the sake of it. Right. And um, I think we just barely treaded that on, on female, you know? Yeah. We talked about being old <laughs> um, and because I am old I'm very happy to hear about this hee-haw stage musical that's yeah. coming that, that you and Brandy Clark have written. Um, I, I could do a whole segment of questions on this, but I'll just ask you, how and did I that concept come about? about and and uh, how did it come about? And then, you know, t- to go from writing a three or four minute song then to try to writing an entire musical, at what a different part of your brain and creativity. And I'd just love to hear about that, you know, that project. What's funny is that uh, it, the music in this show is not that different than a lot of the songs that I've written. In fact, I remember a specific conversation when I was working on a Jake Owen record years ago. Um, he, he referenced a couple of songs of mine not knowing that I had written them. And we're friends, but he, uh, he mentioned Mama's Broken Heart and Better Dig Two that were both on the chart at the same time. And he was like, I mean, these girl songs that people are recording they sound like musicals like they don't sound like country they sound like like they're in broadway shows (laughs) now that was a foreshadowing of this show and i think i always wrote that way um it i didn't even grow up knowing stage musicals i didn't i had never seen oklahoma or i didn't know any of those shows but i did go see the book of mormon when it came out um i was in new york and i was so blown away by the music in that show and I'd never seen anything like it. And I remember sitting in my seat and everybody else is getting up. I get like emotional telling this story because of what it led to. But when that show was over, I looked over at my husband sitting next to me and I said, I want to make people feel the way that made me feel. I laughed so hard I cried. And I cried knowing the amount of work that must have gone into that show. And so, I put that into the world, you know, and then what happened was a couple years later, um, the Opry was f- sort of fishing this idea of 
rebranding Hee Haw into a, a stage musical and what that would look like. And Brandy Clark and I and, and a guy named Robert Horn who wrote the book have been working on it for a few years. And uh, we've, we had an out of town run in Dallas a couple years ago that sort of gave it its initial you know, look. It went really well. We're, we're still in the process. It's actually really funny that today of all days you would mention that because Brandy is flying to LA tomorrow and we'll spend the next three days just working on Hee Haw. Hmm. Uh, getting ready for our next reading in New York um, in awesome. September. And it's funny, the, the way they do things is so different than the way we do music in, in, in our world because being five years into a musical is nothing to them. Huh. All we hear that that's just what it takes. You have so many producers, so many cooks in the kitchen, so much money being raised. People come in and out and they have all these opinions. So, you know, it's just that project that's just always sort of sitting there saying, look at me, look at me, because we have really invested a lot of our heart and time into it. But along the way, the three of us that have written it have had so many other things going on, but yeah. we all come back to it. And, mm. and um, it's so, it's that, that really, at this time, with all the things that I've gotten to do, the musical is the one that keeps me up at night. Wow. Mm. And it's because it indulges a, a part of writing that all songwriters that I know have this piece to them which is they're so quick-witted and could write a parody or a funny song in five minutes that would blow you away right. but they don't ever get heard yeah right. and so that's the stuff that brandy oh, and if I are you could getting use right. all the dirty lines exactly that we, I mean. and guess what you can because irreverence in the broadway world yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's uh commended and that is what we're really playing into is all these things we've never gotten to say in songs <laughs> but when you look back at some of our songs like we've written follow your error together and and Better Dick Two and Mama's Broken Heart. And they have these, these puns and these dark moments and, and laugh out loud moments. Uh, we're getting to really go all the way with that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Well, in these last couple of years, you've stayed at the top of the game with hit singles like Unforgettable and Marry Me for Thomas Rhett, Written in the Sand and Make It Sweet for Old Dominion, Burnout for Midland, Love Ain't for the Eli Young Band, Down to the Hunky Tonk for Jake Owen, and Space Cowboy for Casey Musgraves, which won you yet another Grammy for Best Country Song. You can have your space, cowboy. I ain't gonna fit you in. Go on right away, your Silverado. I'll see you around again. Recently, however, you have stepped into a new role as a mentor on the NBC TV show Songland, where you, um, you know, work with these up-and-coming songwriters to craft material for artists like John Legend, Will I Am, The Jonas Brothers, Megan Trainor, Aloe Black. You know, this is kind of a different uh, world in terms of what you're you're known for. Um, talk about how you got involved in the show and in what ways it has, you know, stretched you as a, a writer to be working in this very different context than people might imagine. Well, they were looking for a country Nashville representative, basically. Uh, they always knew they were going to have Ryan Tedder, and they always knew they were going to have Esther Dean. They both cover just everything but country. Hmm. And um, they were looking for someone in Nashville 
a, a few years ago when the show was first being tossed around, uh, Dave Stewart, uh, formerly of the Eurythmics, and who wrote some of the greatest songs of all time, and, you know, including Sweet Dreams and so, so many others, he had the idea of, of a show that was like Shark Tank, like Top Chef, but for songwriters and how to make that interesting. Because writing songs, mostly, as you guys know, is a lot of quiet, a lot of downtime, a lot of looking at walls. (laughs) And, um, you know, going down halls that people don't want to look down. You just have to go and look behind every door. Um, But I knew the moment that she called me about it, Audrey Morrissey, the main producer, she she just said, I got your number through so-and-so. Actually, she had heard about me through uh, Brandon Blackstock, who is... Kelly Clarkson's husband and he manages Blake Shelton and they were working on the voice and she happened to say in front of Brandon hey is there anybody in Nashville that could do what Blake does here but is from the songwriting world and thank God Brandon said my name I mean Hmm. really just was (laughs) I I couldn't be more grateful for that moment Um, because she hadn't heard of me nobody would have known me in in this world but but Brandon said I really think there's only one guy for that Mm. and um you know it wasn't always going to be me there were other people they talked to along the way but from their point of view they say they didn't know it was always going to be me I say I always knew it was going to be me I have never wanted anything more and never been more fixated on a dream than doing this show and it has proven itself to be everything and more than I could have ever imagined it's completely re-energized my creativity it's reminded me of why I got into music and getting to work with these songwriters that haven't had that moment it just takes me right back to you know 15 years ago when I was like how do I get on the other side of this wall Hmm. because it seems like people over there have every email every phone number access to everyone and this is sort of fast forwarding these songwriters through a lot of things um and believe me they've all already been through it so they deserve to be there but it it really feels like at this point so many dreams of mine have come true that the only way to feel fulfilled right now is to help other people make theirs come true and that is what i'm getting to do well shane thank you so much for your time today this has been really great and it's been fun just to kind of hear the the background on these songs and your story thank you so much thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment now to subscribe to songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com as a reminder you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram by searching for songcraft show all one word And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.